My name's Joel Townsend. Welcome to the first episode of In That Case. This is a podcast in which I'll be exploring some of the most important public interest cases that Australia has seen. I'll be asking some of the people involved to give their reflections, not only to unpack the detail of the cases for us and to think about the legal and social questions involved, but to reflect a bit on their personal experience of being involved in that litigation. Forgive me for a little clunkiness in the audio and the interviewing, but I think the conversation with Stephen Kime is fascinating. So the Hanif story is a a very complicated one and you have to start with a little bit of background. So it's best to start with the uh, terrorist attacks in the early 2000s. First, of course, New York in 2001, then the Bali bombings in 2002, and then in 2004 uh, there are the Madrid train bombings. And after Madrid, the Commonwealth Parliament inserted into the Crimes Act some special provisions and these allowed for extended detention of people who were suspected of some sort of terrorism-related offence. They allowed detention for up to 24 hours, up from four, and they also provided for the clock to stop ticking in a wide range of circumstances and those circumstances included where There were investigations which needed to take place as to facts outside of Australia or evidence outside of Australia and indeed also the clock stopped for time uh, spent analysing the information gleaned from outside the country. So we're now in uh, 2007 and uh, Dr Mohammed Hanif is an Indian doctor living in Brisbane He's working there, uh, having arrived in Australia in 2006. And prior to that, he'd lived with, uh, at one point, two of his second cousins in the United Kingdom and had worked in the UK as a doctor. Uh, on the uh, 26th of June 2007, his daughter's born. Uh, his wife and his daughter are not in Australia with him. Uh, his daughter subsequently... Uh, develops severe jaundice and is unwell and then on 29 and 30 July 2007 there are terrorist incidents in the UK. There's uh, a couple of attempted, there were a couple of attempted car bombings in London and in Glasgow there's an attempted ram raid and bombing at Glasgow airport and one of the second cousins of Dr Hanif with whom he lived in the UK uh, dies some time later from burns he sustains in the Glasgow airport attack. So then on, on 2 July, Dr Hanif is arrested at Brisbane airport. He says he's going to visit his very young daughter and his wife. And uh, particularly he points out that his daughter's unwell. He has a one-way ticket and the Australian Federal Police are concerned that there might be a connection between him and his second cousins in the UK. Uh, They're concerned that possibly Dr Hanif's given a SIM card to one of his second cousins, which might have been used, it's said at one point, to to trigger uh, some of the bombs used in one of the attacks. Uh, They're also concerned about contact between Dr Hanif and his second cousins in 
internet chat rooms, uh, mostly I understand about Dr. Hanif's daughter's birth, and they're also concerned about facts like that they lived together in the UK. So that's on the 2nd of July, and Hanif's then held by the Australian Federal Police until 13 July, and there are several applications for extension of the questioning period under the Crimes Act provisions. At some of those early hearings, he's unrepresented. At some of the later hearings, he is represented. And at many of those hearings, uh, if not all, he's not allowed to see all of the documents provided to the court because there are national security considerations which arise in respect of those documents. So then finally, uh, the end of the questioning period is reached and there are recommendations from some members of the prosecution team that he not be charged with any offence. Uh, Notwithstanding that, on 14 July, apparently at the behest of the Australian Federal Police Anti-Terrorism Head Commander Ramsey Jabul, he's charged with an offence relating to giving aid to a terrorist. And then on 14 July, he makes an application for bail, in part relying on the fact that the case against him is really weak. Uh, after a couple of days, on 16 July, that bail application is granted and immediately the Minister for Immigration cancels Dr Hanib's visa. So the cancellation is made under Section 501 of the Migration Act and that's a provision it allows the minister to cancel a visa where a person fails the character test. There are a number of ways in which you can fail the character test. Uh, some of the limbs of the character test include circumstances where you've been in prison for more than 12 months, for example. Uh, but in Dr Hanif's case, uh, the minister relied not on any criminal offending by Dr Hanif, but on his association with his second cousins in the UK. And ultimately, it was clear that the Minister for Immigration didn't say that there was any association by way of terrorist network with his second cousins, that it was really an innocent association with his cousins, the familial association, the association of having lived together and having had some regular contact. So then Dr Hanif challenges the decision of the Minister in the Federal Court and it goes before Justice Spender. And Justice Spender says, essentially, look, the character test is not met, that is, a person's not subject to potential cancellation of their visa by reason of character, merely because they have an innocent association with somebody who's engaged in criminal conduct. When you look at the whole of Section 501, what you see is a concern about uh, criminality, risk to the community, this kind of thing, and an innocent association doesn't really pass muster. So Justice Spender uh, quashes the cancellation, the Minister appeals to the full court of the Federal Court, and the Minister loses again, so Dr Hanif was entitled not to have his visa cancelled. But in the meantime, he's left Australia. The saga continues, however. Uh, Dr Hanif and his representatives seek Commonwealth Government documents under freedom of information legislation and the litigation about that winds its way through tribunals and courts. There's 
a Commonwealth Government inquiry, the Clark Inquiry, which follows the following year. It's commissioned by the incoming Labor Government. Dr Hanif brings his own civil action about his treatment at the hands of the government and I understand that settles and so we don't have a lot of information in the public domain about that, no court judgments or anything of that nature. But additionally, uh, there's a complaint against Dr Hanif's lawyer, his barrister, Stephen Kime SC. During the course of the public furore about Dr Hanif's case, there is selective leaking of transcript of the interviews in the popular press. And in order to correct the record, Stephen Kime releases the whole of the transcript. And ultimately, uh, although he argues he was simply seeking to correct the record, there's a complaint made against him under the Queensland Bar Rules and the Legal Services Commissioner in Queensland deals with the complaint saying that he breached the rule which says you can't release, as a barrister, you can't release documents which concern a current proceeding. So that then proceeds before the Legal Services Commissioner and ultimately it's found that he did breach that rule but there's no penalty imposed on him. So it's a big rambling series of controversies and it raises questions that are still I think at the heart of Australian public life. Uh, involves questions about the deprivation of liberty, it involves questions about the treatment of citizens as against non-citizens, about these questions of national security and border protection in the age of terrorism. It involves these questions about cancellation of visas, which are very much still uh, a part of our public debate. And it also involves questions about the role of the law and the role of lawyers. So it's a fascinating conversation that I had with Stephen Kime, and I hope that that gives you a little bit of background about exactly what he's going to be talking about. Arrest of Dr. Hanif occurs on on the second of July in two thousand and seven, and then then he's detained, uh, arrested and detained, and and there's an, a a long period um, of a number of days over the course of which he's he's um, questioned, and after yeah. after several days he's he's represented at a at a hearing before the magistrate um, by Peter Russo, uh, and had you not been involved in the background to that point? Was it only after that? Okay. No, no. I used to I used to know all those dates, including <laughs> uh, including the baby's birth date and all of that off by heart. Um, the second was a Monday, I think, um, or the second might have been a Sunday night. Um, and uh, Peter appeared on a Thursday night. And they'd also given him copies of the legislation that was applicable and stuff like that. Peter rang me on the Friday morning. I had something in the in the Queensland Conciliation Commission, so um, we may have spoken at lunchtime, but but basically we spoke properly on the Friday night. Uh, and I sort of photocopied it stuff and took stuff home and read it on the Sunday. Um, and, and by the Sunday, I'd worked out it. I knew at least 
uh, I was confused about it. I really thought it was some kind of protective detention, and I thought um, that's supposed to be, you know, because I was a little bit aware of the legislation as to whether it had been passed and people were making submissions and stuff. And I thought, how come it's in all the papers? Because it's supposed to be completely secret. And then I realised it was this other section of the Crimes Act uh, which allowed arrest but but not going straight to charge and going to detention for the purpose of questioning, etc. Uh, so I'd worked all of that out by the, by the Sunday night. Uh, and then I appeared on the Monday, the Wednesday and the Friday. Uh, and they started to give us a bit more information and on the Friday they decided, uh, this is the second Friday, so it's about the 13th, they decided... Um, they didn't want to extend the time and everybody thought that they'd do another interview and then they'd not proceed but that's when uh, people started getting phone calls from Canberra and that's when um, the head of domestic terrorism for the um, AFP decided that he would be the person who would charge with the offence. The arresting officers refused. Uh, Queensland senior officer said you know, there's just no evidence. But that's when Ramsey Jabour said, you know, I'll, I'll charge him. And that's... And so it was on the Saturday, so I'd appeared on the Monday, Wednesday and Friday, arguing natural justice and uh, apprehended bias version of natural justice. And uh, and then on the Saturday, I got to make a um, the bail application without much preparation. And that, you know, we argued that and then we came back after lunch and argued some more of the law. And that was handed down on uh, Monday. So we were going to get him out if we could find uh, a couple of sureties of $5,000 each. And then that's when um, his passport was cancelled and he was taken into immigration detention. So that's that's how it unfolded. Mm-hmm. So uh, I got the phone call on Friday morning. I had the weekend to work things out and then it was just, it just became full time. Stephen made it clear to me that he had no idea that the Minister's decision to cancel the doctor's visa was coming. A couple of hours later the, the visa cancellation from the Immigration Minister comes down. Yeah. Did you have any uh, inkling that something like that might be in the pipeline? No, not really. Not really. Not really. And I had a sort of a strange reaction to it as well. You know, I sort of... Uh, uh, I sort of just thought, oh, OK, well, it's the next thing we've got to cope with. That's something we just want to do. But, I, I mean, if I can say this, uh, you know, going back to... I mean, it was a strange case and it, it wasn't a criminal case and I probably was suited having some background in admin law to think about the natural justice points and argue them before the magistrate and stuff like that. Um, I wasn't that suited to immigration law and, in fact, I got two people from Chambers to help with that. And, um, and in fact, Daryl Rangia, who's now a federal court judge, when we are both in the federal court at first instance and on appeal, he 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 argue, he he actually did more of the argument. And Nitra Kitson, who's still in chambers with me, um, so they were they knew the Migration Act very well. 
that I'm much better positioned to do that. But um, uh, so yeah, so I sort of got them involved uh, from that point on, and um, and then the criminal case collapsed a couple of weeks later. So it, it we it was things were changing all the time. We were changing from one area of the law to another area of law. I'm sure Stephen Kime had no time to think about how he found himself in the midst of this case when he was running it, uh, but I was wondering what had led him there and asked him about his background and he talked a little bit first of all about uh, his involvement in some environmental public interest litigation. I'm not really sure why I got involved in the conservation cases, um, but um, a, a number of cases that I, I did were conservation cases, including the Mount Etna Bats case litigation in 1988-1989. I've always been happy to have it in this practice, and that practice has always had its own head. Um, you know, I was a sort of lawyer, whichever, you know, the next book that I got or, or that I sat down to do. But that um, public profile, particularly with the Council of Civil Liberties and then later when I did the conservation cases, that obviously influenced to some extent um, the work that I wasn't briefed in, uh, you know, and the pro bono and public interest work that people asked me to do. Mm. Um, you get a reputation for being a bleeding heart and people respond accordingly. <laughs> and and is that is that what then led to you being uh, briefed in, in two thousand seven in the in the um, Hanif case? Um, I sort of did have connections with Peter Russo. And um, even now, even you know, even after having done an 18-week prosecution, I still don't think of myself as a criminal lawyer. I mean, there's lots of um, uh, young criminal defence lawyers in chambers with me, and um, you know, they do it day in day out. Um, uh, you know, and Peter would have known that I wasn't a criminal lawyer, but 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 Peter had a problem case. Uh, and I still don't know to this day whether I was the, the 50th person he, person he rang or the first person he rang. But <laughs> he, 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 and I, I think, I, I think that happens a fair bit. Uh, I think people brief me for unusual cases, uh, and Peter had a problem case, and and um, you know that's why he briefed me. Uh, if it, if it had been a straightforward case, then he, he, he might have briefed someone who, um, you know, who, who was more of a mainstream criminal lawyer. In the federal court, a challenge for Dr Hanif was that Justice Emmett of the federal court had held in a previous case that a person could satisfy the association limb of the character test even if there was no nexus between their association and criminal conduct. That is, their association with the alleged criminal was entirely innocent. One of the interesting things in reading the 
judgment of um, Justice Spender is that it's this quite full-throated, as I read it, invocation of the Constitution and the rule of law as these interpretive tools, uh, and on the back of those um, principles, uh, a, a narrower reading of the meaning of the association limb of the character test. And I wondered whether that was <clears throat> the way in which you framed your argument before Justice Spender, or whether that was um, that was something which um, Justice Spender did uh, without without particular prompting, because it seemed to me quite a striking. Uh, element of the decision? It, it was a bit of both, I think. I mean, he he was enthusiastic about it, um, but he had to deliver his judgment within a fairly short period of time as well. Um, and uh, we probably felt, uh, you know, whereas, I mean, I felt good about the appeal, Um we sort of thought that um, if he'd had a bit more time, he could have made the, the decision a little bit more appeal-proof. Uh, it, it, you know, parts of it he'd obviously spent a lot of time writing, but it, it probably wasn't as complete as it might have been, which, which we thought might have left some openings for the, for the full court. But, the, you know, the full court came on... Um, you know, they, they also delivered uh, pretty strong judgments. Then there's um, FOI proceedings um, under which um, uh, your client was seeking documents from the Commonwealth Government and, and then also there was when when Labor came into government, I think the, the following, late that year or the following year, uh, the... Um, Attorney General commissioned uh, an inquiry into the into the whole. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, so what Peter did was to get Morris Blackburn involved because we were sort of getting into a civil stage, and the two firms worked together, um, and uh, I, I did have some juniors helping me, but the Clark inquiry part of it. Uh, like Daryl and Nietzsche weren't involved in that part of it, I don't think. Uh, and well, Nietzsche, Nietzsche might still have been, but uh, but we felt pretty comfortable with that. Mr. Clark uh, was a good listener. We uh, spent a lot of time uh, writing lots of different submissions. Uh, and then we, we did pursue various forms of... Uh, Freedom of information. We we thought it would help a fill in any gaps in terms of information, and also might help uh, in terms of the civil action, which which we we commenced later as well after the Clark inquiry, and which was eventually settled a year or so later in a um, in a mediation process. Uh, and the FOI stuff was interesting, but the little bits and pieces of extra information that we got didn't really reveal anything that Mr Clark hadn't already reported on or that we didn't we didn't know broadly uh, about because because of the original stuff that had been provided on FOI or provided through the original litigation process so 
So the FOI, FOI was interesting, but it wasn't as if we, we unearthed any real nuggets of gold. Were you satisfied with what you'd uncovered? Did you think there was more of a story there that we won't know until cabinet documents are released, or, or, or did you feel you'd kind of got got as close to the bottom of it as as uh, you could? Uh, probably both both alternatives. Yes. Um, I, I I think um, I think I got a much better understanding of. Uh, you know, what meetings were called and who had input into which things and which certainly um, uh, revealed the fact that um, that this was uh, an in, uh, a circumstance where ASIO were right on the ball and ASIO re- realised that, um, you know, there was no evidence against Dr Hanif, you know, probably within 24 hours of the arrest and they told the government that and they told the other bureaucrats that uh, you know so it was a case where ASIO showed good judgment and the AFP uh, just continued to, to press on regardless and, and blindly um, and we I mean that's I mean that's something that we don't know the answer to we don't know why uh, we don't know who Ramsey Jabul was talking to in Canberra before he came back uh, to say I'm going to make the arrest we don't know what influenced the AFP into um, really going completely against uh, the lack of evidence to persist in um, charging Dr Hanith. And, and, and uh, again, when the Commonwealth DPP looked at it, um, you know, as soon as they took about a week to, to realise that there was nothing in it, and also that story broke in London because um, uh, uh, the AFP had always said that they had information that the phone was sort of uh, at the scene of the offence. And in fact, the phone was in the possession of the other brother, who I think was the one that... Uh, that um, Dr. Hanif had given it to, you know, so that the, the phone, the thing that was supposed to have assisted terrorism, wasn't anywhere near um, the, the acts that had been carried out. So on that ground that alone, the case, you know, the, the, the case would have been baseless. Um, but, yeah, so there are stories there that aren't told yet. We, we don't know what the AFP's motivation was we don't know what was, um, uh, you know, what instructions the uh, director of domestic terrorism, Ramsey Jabul, was getting, and we we don't know uh, to what extent the commission of the AFP, um, you know, what, what was motivating him at the time. Um, and we don't know what communications there were between the government and the AFP. Uh, I'm not saying that there were, there were nefarious communications. We just don't know. But what we do know is that the AFP made some very bad judgments, forensic judgments, about whether there was a case or not. And so you think uh, somewhere in it all there must be some explanation for those bad judgments because the arresting officers could see there was no evidence. There was um, material in the 
popular press about uh, what Dr Hanif had said in the course of interviews with the AFP and then uh, you uh, gave to journalists the full transcript of the uh, yeah, yeah. Of, of the interviews and and that then led to you being criticised and, and indeed action being taken against you and so I, I was wondering if you could briefly um, say something about that and, and something about the fact that uh, sometimes in the midst of this uh, litigation you the lawyer become a part of the story. Yeah, and it's it's not something that should uh, happen other than very rarely. Uh, I mean, I was concerned right from my first involvement that a lot of negative publicity and, and sensational publicity had been occurring. Um, I, I was contacted through... Um, through somebody in chambers was friends with the journalist from the Australian. Um, so I hadn't gone looking for media contacts, but, but the journalist from the Australian uh, had contacted me and, and I was happy to talk to him. Um, uh, so the decision to release the material was really to say, well, and and I'd considered it. I hadn't considered it in terms of Rule 60 under the Bar Rules, but I'd considered it in terms of contempt of court. And I'd taken the view that well, all of this stuff will come out of committal stage, so I can't be seen to be prejudicing the trial by releasing it at this stage. And I'm not releasing um, selective information. I'm, I'm releasing the the whole of the transcript, and it. it sets out the allegations and it sets out uh, my client's answers to the allegations. Uh, I mean, I suppose one of the things I've been most uh, criticised for is I, I didn't seek instructions to release it because I thought uh, uh, it was better for my client if I made those judgments and if it all went wrong, I was the one who was able to be criticised. So it was released. Um, there was, uh, and then, and that looked pretty good. And then it all turned bad because uh, somebody at the Australian had given the Commission of the AFP permission to say that it hadn't, the documents hadn't come from the prosecution, which meant it wasn't hard to deduce that it must have come from the defence. Uh, and so I made a pretty much instant decision that I had to take responsibility uh, for it. So I called a press conference and, and I explained, yes, I had released it and this is why I released it. I haven't done anything wrong in, in releasing it. Um, it. It turned into one of those accidental, uh, brilliant strategic moves because <laughs> um, sort of from 9am when, when the Commissioner of the AFP was saying, well, uh, I'm, I'm permitted uh, to say... It hadn't come from the prosecution that they encouraged the Attorney-General and Prime Minister to come out and say what terrible people the defence were to have leaked something like this. And that they had been very careful up to that point in time, but it was like they'd come out of their hiding place. And then I came out and, and defended myself, and that was a, obviously a pretty hectic day. Um, but in the end, I think you know, we, we won the sympathy of the public because... They, they had been seeing, you know, that 
they thought that no one would be able to argue with them because we would never come out and take responsibility. So that's the decision I made. And the only thing that I'm pissed off about is that that um, both the finding of the the bar committee and and the finding of the NOC said that I had breached the rule, but it didn't amount to professional misconduct. I felt that it was an unusual action from the beginning. Uh, and that if I had to be made accountable for it, um, then that was a proper thing to be made accountable for it. And, um, I mean, you'd wonder, you know, why the AFP commissioner would complain as opposed to, you know, somebody with responsibility for that. But, you know, I, I didn't object to being made accountable. And even if... Even if it had gone badly for me, even if um, uh, you know I'd been reprimanded or something, I, I could have copped that, you know, because um, I, I know that people who I respected wouldn't have thought badly of me for it. You know, I mean, there's there's every reason that we we as lawyers don't want to be appearing in the um, you know in in the professional misconduct files uh, of the courts and stuff like that, but this is a rare circumstance where even if I was found to have done something wrong, a lot of people would have still under understood that, that um, the deeper magic said it was appropriate. Ten years on, this is still the case that people um, chat to you about, rather than you know some of the subsequent litigation work you've done. I mean, you've been um, uh, involved in lots more environmental litigation, I know, and and also um, you've had uh, high court criminal law uh, litigation as well as as well as being involved on refugee issues. So, does it feel like this one is going to be the one that um, people always remember, or and and if so, does that bother you? Uh, it's been pretty good to me, really. You know, I got to... Um, if you go to my um, my academia page, you can probably see how many speeches I got invited to make with regard to it. So there's a lot of interest and, um, you know, I, I wrote some analyses, for example, with, with, with another barrister of sort of a judge's crisis in Queensland and published them in Justinian, um, which I think were really good analysis of what was happening with the Supreme Court judges and, and Chief Justice Carmody and the government and all of that sort of stuff. But, um, you know, I, I get asked to, to speak at things and I, I can get stuff that I write published, um, possibly because, uh, because of Hanif. I had the experience. Uh, I had the moment in the sun. Um, I it was a strange time where there were no rules, and so you know the decision to release the material. It was just a decision I had to make on instinct, and then the decision to take responsibility for releasing it. Uh, there were no rules for that either. It 
one of the challenges I think of public interest litigation work in particular is this sort of sense that sometimes uh, law can start to look like look like politics by just another means, like uh, uh, knuckle politics disguised um, uh, in the dress of law. And and you don't sound like you have any cynicism of that kind about the law simply because of having had contact with those sorts of approaches to administering the law? Um, I think we're lucky with our judges. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I think we're lucky um, with our legal profession. The rule of law is so important and the rule of law protects us um, from a lot of things. But when we think of all the bad things uh, that have happened uh, in the world, um, whether it's slavery or Nazism or discrimination or uh, executions, uh, uh, so much of that happens according to the rule of law. So, um, you know, insisting on the rule of law protects us from a lot of tyranny and a lot of bad government. Um, but the law is not always good, you know. The law has done a lot of bad things. And what of Mohammed Hanif now, and what of Stephen Kime now, as he reflects on this extraordinary series of pieces of litigation, which was such an interesting part of Australian public life? They've had a little boy now, and they're used to working as a doctor, and um, uh, we got to see everybody when, when the mediation was on, so he and his wife came out to that, and that was a nice reunion. And Yeah, yeah, no, I, I um, you know, it's... Um, you know, it's, it's, if you could actually have thought it up um, beforehand, you know, it's the sort of stuff you can't you can't make up. But you know, if somebody had offered it to me, um, I would have been mad not to say yes. I have a saying um, that that, that uh, my practice as a lawyer has been um, a combination of. Um, many, many heroic failures and, and a small number of great victories. I feel really privileged to be, to have been involved in so much um, interesting litigation and, and litigation that felt that I was um, playing a pretty important role uh, over the years. <laughs>